0: All right, guys, you are locked on Falcons. I'm your host, Aaron Freeman, and today we are talking about some of the prominent nuggets and takeaways from the Falcons Wednesday training camp practice, as well as get into the conversation surrounding Dirt Cutter's offense, and maybe it could be improved in 2020. You are locked on Falcons, your daily Atlanta Falcons podcast, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team everyday. So guys, today's Locked On Falcons podcast is brought to you Buy rockauto.com, amazing selection, reliably low prices, and all the parts your car will ever need. Of course, I am Aaron Freeman, been covering the Falcons for many years. You can find me on Twitter at FalconFans. and of course, I'm the host of this preeminent Locked On Falcons podcast, your daily Atlanta Falcons podcast right here on the Locked On Podcast Network, and today's episode, we will sort of get into my thoughts on some of the takeaways and observations from the Falcons Wednesday practice, which was a non padded practice following on the heels of Tuesday's padded practice. And we'll sort of get into some of the conversation about sort of Todd Gurley and Alex Mack, you know, being rested and sort of having that load management. We'll talk a little bit more about the left guard competition as well as the defensive line depth revolving around, what roles Charles Harris and John Kaminsky are going to have. We'll get a little bit later into the improvements that Joe Witt Jr. has instilled in the secondary uh, specifically on Isaiah Oliver, but the bulk of today's episode will be sort of dealing with the project that I've been working on the last couple of days in which I've gone back and looked at the first 15 plays of every Falcon game from 2019 to sort of see what I could glean from that to see whether or not Dirt Cutter was starting to figure things out uh, as the year wore on, um, as well as certain things and certain trends that I noticed during those get scripted elements of the game that we may be able to improve upon in 2020, focusing specifically at the tight end position. So that is what we are going to be talking about on today's episode. But, you know, let's get in that locked on Falcons lead story, talking about Wednesday's practice. So Ty Gurley and Alex Mack were back at Falcons practice on Wednesday after sitting out Tuesday's padded practice. According to Dan Quinn, the Falcons have a set plan for arresting both Gurley and Mack on select days over the next two and a half weeks. Note that the timetable would end just as the team begins their week of practices before the team is set to kick off the regular season in a home game against the Seattle Seahawks. As ESPN's Von McClure termed it, it's, Really, load management comparable to what you see with some of the star players in the NBA resting on select nights. Max rest is related to his being 34 years old, while Gurley's is related to the arthritic condition in his knee, which of course stems from the ACL tear that he suffered six years ago at the University of Georgia. In other news. Falcons guard Jamon Brown is in the concussion protocol after missing three practices due to illness. Veteran guard James Carpenter and rookie Matt Hennessy worked with the first team unit at the left guard position during Wednesday's practice. Brown's absence hurts his chances of potentially winning that open competition that the Falcons have for their starting left guard spot. With most reports recently indicating that Carpenter, Hennessy, and Matt Gano are splitting the starting reps over the past few days. Also, according to D. Orlando Ledbetter of the Atlanta Journal Constitution, new Falcons defensive end Charles Harris is getting first team reps at that position. And it makes me wonder what exactly Harris's role will be this upcoming season. Is he the new Brooks Reed that will be sort of the team's early down run defender, or is he more of the new Dwight Freeney and be more of that pass rushing specialist right now? I'm assuming it's probably going to be closer to Reed, and he'll be tasked with playing on both run and passing downs. But I do wonder how Harris's role will impact John Kaminsky's role in his second NFL season, given that. Kaminsky seemed to be a pretty good fit to play defensive end on those early rundowns. Von McClure mentioned Kaminsky as one of the guys that is impressing the team and mentioned his stance and his inside rushing ability as areas that have improved. That last tidbit is notable since Kaminsky, while a gifted athlete, was fairly raw and rudimentary as a pass rusher with not much of a pass rush move besides his raw power last year during his rookie year in Atlanta. And one can hope that we will see some development there and improvement there. And maybe he'll be able to learn how to use his hands. And if that's the case, that should certainly provide a much needed boost to the Falcons defensive line rotation. So guys, there's your locked on Falcons lead story. With my tidbits from Wednesday's practice, we'll talk a little bit more about sort of what Isaiah Oliver and Joe Witt Jr. got going on and how Oliver can improve under the the great tutelage of Joe Witt Jr., the Falcons cornerback coach. And we'll also sort of get into my uh, assessment of Dirk Cutter's first 15 game scripts from 2019 and what issues they raised, particularly in how he used tight ends uh, last season. And we'll get into that later. But before we get there, you know, I was hoping that I would be able to finish that project uh, watching the film of Dirt Cutter on Tuesday. But unfortunately, I wasn't able to do so because I had to spend several hours driving across the state of North Carolina to help my cousin purchase a new car because his current car is, you know, a little bit of a clunker. And lo and behold, it lived up to that expectation because while we were driving, you know, an hour away, the car kind of broke down because his accelerator cable got detached. Now, fortunately, he was able to reattach that accelerated cable. But the thing is that, you know, the people that he had working on his car recently didn't necessarily do a good job. And we discovered that he does a better job of working on his own car. And you know what I had to tell him when we finally got back in the car and we're able to continue on our long journey is why send your car to people that aren't even going to fix it when all you gotta do is just go to rockauto.com and whether you're looking for accelerator cables or engine parts or brake parts or new floor mats. RockAuto.com has it. RockAuto.com's catalog is unique, easy to navigate, and he can quickly see all the parts available for his car, as well as you guys can do so. Choose by brand specification and the price. That you prefer, and those prices at RockAuto.com are reliably low. The same for professionals and do-it-yourselfers, just like my cousin. So I told them like, why do you have to spend twice as much for the same parts? So I told him, go to RockAuto.com right now, see all the parts available for his car, and you guys can do the same for your car or truck. And when you do, write locked on in the How did you hear about us box so that they know that we sent you amazing selection, reliably low prices, and all the parts your car will ever need. RockAuto.com so one of the other things that emerged in, in, uh, the various articles, uh, I believe on the AJC had one talking about Isaiah Oliver. I think d had that article, but he had an article about Isaiah Oliver and it included a lot of praise of Joe Witt Jr. talking up Joe Witt Jr. who, who has a, very uh, glowing reputation as a uh, coach of cornerbacks, something that we have discussed quite a bit over the last several months since his hiring here in Atlanta back in January. And um, you know, that article sort of mentioned some of the tidbits, but it got me thinking sort of about what Joe Witt junior can do for Isaiah Oliver. And one of the things that he's going to have to work on with Oliver is Improving that technique, I think Oliver's technique was better in the second half of the season, uh, made some modest gains, but I think he's going to have to make bigger gains largely due to the fact that, you know, Oliver isn't maybe the best athlete. Um, you know, he's a good athlete, um, but he I wouldn't call him stiff, but he's not necessarily the smoothest guy in the world. You know, he's, he's kind of long and lanky um, and that showed itself quite often last year and even in his rookie season when he had to match up against speed. And I think if he's going to wind up winning that starting, presumably right cornerback spot, in order to be an effective starter, you know, game in and game out, and rather than just sort of being the specialist that, you know, goes up against the Mike Evanses and the Michael Thomas's, the big wider, you know, the DK Metcalfs and whatnot, but being able to deal with those guys in addition to all the other, you know, fast guys, the Stephon Diggs, the T.Y. Hiltons, the Devontae Adams, those types of guys, he's going to have to improve his technique and it's going to have to be on point because he just doesn't necessarily have what I think is the speed and the burst to be able to run with those guys. If he messes up, Um, unlike a a player like Kendall Sheffield, who's super fast. And even if his technique is not sloppy, he has that makeup speed. And I don't think Oliver has that. So that's why it's important for Oliver to improve his technique. So, um, you know, it sounds promising that Joe Witt Jr. is is working with these guys and we'll see sort of what gains they make this season. uh, How big a, a leap, you know, I think, Even myself, Mr. Pessimism uh, expects some improvement. The question is how much? Um, So like that to me is really the conversation with those guys, sort of how much improvement? Is it enough to, you know, completely change the narrative on those guys where they're like right now? I think Sheffield is a competent number three and Oliver is a somewhat underwhelming number three corner right now or are those guys going to turn into guys that can be reliable number twos? You know, that's a, that would be a substantial jump for both of those guys Um, or at least, you know, at the very least be a steady number three type of guy. So we'll see how that goes. I thought it was interesting that, you know, one of the changes that Joe Witt Jr. has implemented is that they are now the corners are now working with the jugs machine. So hopefully that pays off with, you know, guys catching a few more interceptions. If only, you know, Desmond Trufant had gotten that work on the jugs machine over the last, you know, six years, maybe he would have snagged a few more interceptions, but that's it in terms of my thoughts on, on practices. And we'll move on to sort of get more into my thoughts on the predictability of the Falcons offense. And this came about because I read the article over at AtlantaFalcons.com by Kelsey Conway. I think it was last Friday that talked about dirt cutter and his potential to improve the Falcons offense now going into year two. And to basically summarize that article, I recommend you guys go check it out. But a lot of sort of what dirt cutter mentioned was sort of a big learning curve for him was trying to learn the language of the Shanahan system. And now that he's gotten that down, he should be essentially off to the races. um, And we should see comparable improvement um, in year two for dirt cutter. Like we saw for Kyle Shanahan in year two, back in 2016 and then Steve Sarkeesian in his second year in 2018. Um, at least that's the theory behind it. Of course, you know me, I, I tend to be a little skeptical of these things. I will certainly concede that the language barrier is a bit of a is certainly a significant obstacle to overcome in terms of your comfort with calling plays. But I guess watching the games, it seemed to me that like, it wasn't the my, my main issue with Dirk Cutter was sort of his conceptual understanding of the Shanahan offense, not necessarily like words meant different things in the, in the different language as he terms it. And I guess the way I would explain it is it's like learning math in in another language. Like, you know, if I was speaking Spanish or whatever, it would be hard for me if I was a a math teacher to communicate to my students that are all Spanish speakers because I'm not fluent in Spanish. But at the same time, like when I'm sitting up there on the chalkboard writing out the problems, like the math is the same, whether it's in English or Spanish, you know, like explaining the math is hard, but understanding the math is is doesn't matter what language I know because math is a universal language. So maybe that's not a great analogy, but it, it it seemed like if if I'm continuing this metaphor, like it seemed like to me that Dirk Cutter was teaching algebra while Shanahan was offense. His system is teaching calculus, so to speak, you know what I'm saying? So while that language barrier is significant, I don't know if that's really the core issue that Dirk Cutter was dealing with, but at least in the sense of, you know, that article giving Dirk Cutter the benefit of the doubt you know, the article was saying the right things with seemingly Dirk Cutter going to be using more of the foundation and concepts and principles uh, established by Shanahan rather than sort of those that seem to be the core principles of his offense. But one of the quotes that Dirk Cutter said specifically in that article made me think, and it, it was Cutter said the first half of the year, we were just playing from behind a lot time and score factors into that. If we are a faster starting team and you're playing with the tie score, or you're ahead. You're in more situations where you can run the football hashtag established the run. But it made me think sort of like whether or not the Falcons were able to have a little bit more successful starts in the second half of the season. Now watching the season live at the moment, it didn't seem like that was the case. It seemed like the offense made the most modest of modest gains in the second half of the season. And really the big step forward of why the team was so much more successful in the second half of the season was because the defense was actually getting stops early in games, which was not the case in the first half of the season. And so even though the offense continued to be stagnant for large portions of the early parts of games, it didn't really hurt them to a main degree. And one, example of that is like the Falcons were one of the worst red zone teams in the league in the second half of the season after their bye week I believe that they're, they ranked like 29th in red zone conversion rate in the second half of the season over the last eight games of the season. So that is one thing that, you know, is kind of proof positive, but I wanted to give dirt cutter the benefit of the doubt and really go back and watch like the first 15 plays of each of those games last year, which is the scripted part of the game and chart those plays and, see if maybe there was some modest improvement in the second half of the season, even if it was a subtle one thinking that the Falcons were maybe better at moving the ball, but they just kind of ground to a halt in the red zone uh, more often than not. And, you know, the reason why you look at the first 15 games, or at least the reason why I look at the first 15 game first, first 15 plays is that that's the scripted part of the game for the majority of teams. And basically the theory is like, those are going to be your best plays. Those are going to be sort of, the plays that are less determined by as dirt cutter, put it like situation, score, and those types of things, or even the success you had running plays earlier in the game. It's the idea, sort of the analogy is like, it's a difference between if you're a comedian, if you're a prepared, if you have a prepared set list versus, you know, improv and doing some crowd work, you know, the idea is that your best jokes should be the prepared ones that you have. And, you know, improv can be a little bit more hit and miss. So basically after doing that, The conclusion I reached is that, um, you know, there was no difference between the team's offense in the first half of the season versus the second half of the season. You look at their success rate, at least when judging by success rate, you look at their overall offensive success rate in weeks one through eight on the first 15 plays It was 47 percent. Their success rate from weeks 10 through 17 was 46 percent. When you look at their first half success running the football was 43%. Second half was 41% passing both halves. It was 49%. So not really any difference in terms of the Falcons getting off to better starts offensively in the second half of the season. Again, lending credence to the idea that it was really the defense getting stops that led to their success in the second half of the season. But what I, one of the things I did notice that was an interesting coincidence um, was that if you just looked at the team success rate on the first six plays and the I chose six plays arbitrarily just because like, oh, if you have two, three and outs, that would represent six offensive plays. So what was fascinating is that the the Falcons had five games in which they had a success rate of 67 percent or higher on the first six plays. And they were five and oh in those games. And obviously for the rest of the season and the rest of the games, they were two and nine when they had less than that. And it was just funny that you could basically accurately gauge whether or not the Falcons were going to win a game for most of last season based off of how good they were for the first six plays. So basically, if they had successful plays on four or five of those first six, they were going to win. If they didn't, there was a high, high probability that they were going to lose. And so the two games where they did manage to win where they did not have a high success rate. Both games, they had a success rate of 33% on those first six plays. That was the first Carolina game. Shout out to Kyle Allen and the 49er game. So, that was something that I noticed. And another thing that I noticed was sort of the predictability of the offense when it came to certain p- formations and personnel groupings. And we will get into that and talk about the tight end position and how it, it factors into that coming up on today's podcast. But before we get there, I do want to let you guys know that you should be subscribed to the Lockdown Fantasy Football podcast, where host Vinny Iyer is giving you all the tidbits and tricks that you need in order to get that edge for your upcoming fantasy football season subscribe to the locked on fantasy football podcast on your favorite podcast platform, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or whatever you're listening to me right now. So one of the things that I noticed watching the first 15 plays about midway through the season, it was maybe around like the saints, the first saints game after the bye week that I noticed this trend, which was basically how predictable the Falcons offense was by looking who the Titan was on. It was so many times I had seen, Oh, the Falcons are in 11 personnel. Which is three wide receivers, one running back, one tight end, with Luke Stocker on the field, and then they run the ball almost every time, right? At least during the scripted element of the game. After I noticed that trend for several games, I was like, oh, "Okay, I have to really go back and, and look this up to see if this is true." Is it basically like if if the Falcons and I looked at their eleven personnel, I looked at their twenty one personnel, which was uh, two two running backs, one tight end, uh, typically that second running back being a fullback, and I wanted to sort of take out third downs. Right. Because obviously when the Falcons are, you know, pretty much on all third downs, with the exception of like third and one, teams are going to throw the football. So it's not fair to sort of factor that in. So just looking at sort of those personnel groupings, 11 and 21 personnel on first and second downs, noticing who was the tight end on the field in those situations. And when Stocker was the tight end in those situations, the Falcons ran the ball 78 percent of the time. Right. Now, you compare that to when Austin Hooper was the tight end in that situation. They only ran the ball 32 percent of the time. Right. And again, this is, again, only factoring in the first 15 plays. And so what was interesting is that this trend even continued in the in those games where Stocker and and, and Hooper were out, you know, Hooper missed those three games after the first Saints game and Stocker missed the second Saints game. And so basically Jaden Graham came in and, and basically had a similar percentage as Austin Hooper did for those three games where he was replacing him. And even Carson Meyer, who basically was their Luke Stocker replacement in that second Saints game had a similar percentage in usage in that game. So it was basically like if you were a smart defensive coordinator or not even that smart, you just basically did any basic tendency analysis. You would have realized like, Oh, Luke Stocker's in the game at tight end. The Falcons are going to run the football. Austin Hooper's in the game at tight end or, you know, when there's one tight end on the field, you know, it's more more than likely going to be a passing situation. Now, that isn't, you know, 100% of the time. They did throw the ball on occasion when Luke Stocker was in the game, uh, particularly in the 11 personnel. But overwhelmingly, when they were in that 11 personnel, that three wide receiver set with Luke Stocker in the field, when they did throw the ball, it was almost always a pat play action pass. 83% of those pass plays were play action, had some form of play action passing on those plays. And so for the sake of comparison, when you look at Austin Hooper's passing plays, it was only 8% of the plays that he was on the field where the Falcons utilized play action out of 11 personnel. So, again, it makes perfect sense that if you're going to run the ball as much as the Falcons did with Luke Stocker, when you do pass the ball, it makes perfect sense to utilize the play action in those situations. And the same is true when you look at the 21 personnel, again, with two running backs, a fullback, and one tight end. When Stocker was on the field, 56% of those 21 personnel groupings over the first 15 plays of the game were uh, run plays. 67% of the pass plays were play action compared to Hooper when on the field in 21 personnel. 25% of his snaps were run plays and 67% of his pass... No, I'm sorry. And none of his uh, passing plays utilized play action. So basically, again, any competent defensive coordinator should be able to figure out the Falcons tendencies based off of their first 15 plays, at least if they're paying attention to the tight end position. And the reason why I bring this up is not to simply say that dirt cutter was being way too predictable last year, although by all means, feel free to c- come to that conclusion if you so choose. But I think, you know, when you look at the potential for the Falcons to expand and improve upon this in 2020 with Jaden Graham as the number two tight end, at least in theory, like, the Falcons shouldn't be as predictable and at least should be, even if they are a lot more versatile utilizing their tight end position because of Jaden Graham's ability to be a more effective pass catcher than stocker. And so you don't necessarily have to put him in the game to basically run block, right? Like because he has that ability as a pass catcher that when he goes into the game in these 11 personnel or in 21 personnel, you should feel just as confident throwing the ball in those situations as you would be if he was, you know, Hayden Hurst or Austin Hooper, right? At least in theory. So I think that's something that the Falcons could potentially expand upon. Um, this upcoming season, you look at the two tight end sets, which is the 12 personnel: on one running back two tight ends during the first 15 scripted plays, the Falcons ran the ball about 46% of the time, which is a pretty good balance in terms of this league, you know, typically 45% is, good balance in the NFL. Their success rate passing out of 12 personnel was 55%. Their success rate running was 44%. Again, both of those are good marks. Again, relatively speaking, 40, you, you'd you ideally want to do better than 44% running, but given the struggles of the Fockets had running the football, relatively speaking, 44% is, is, is pretty good. And so what's interesting is like, if you remove those three games where Hooper was out there, Success rates even go up even further. Their success rate passing in the games that Hooper was healthy out of their 12 percent, it was 67 percent. It was 50 percent rushing, which, you know, I think speaks to the backups and the quality of the backup players for that drop off. But what was notable also that I noticed was that the Falcons utilized a lot of play action when they used that two tight end set you know at least during the first 15 plays their play action passing accounted for about 59% of those pass plays when they were utilizing two tight ends so that multi tight end offense could be something that the falcons could expand upon this upcoming season you you compare it say to when the falcons had 22 personnel which is two full back or two running backs uh and two tight ends versus the 13 personnel which is one running back and three tight ends, which generally speaking are running situations in the Falcons certainly showed that sort of tendency last year. They ran the ball on 89% of their first 15 plays where they utilized, you know, 22 personnel um, and 75% ran the ball in 13 personnel. And again, I, I think that's a little bit too predictable for my taste, but to be fair to dirt cutter, at least their success rate when they did run the ball, certainly out of 22 personnel was pretty good. It was about 67% compared to 33% when they ran the ball out of 13 personnel during those first 15 plays. So at least, you know, if you're going to be 90% running the football, at least be good at it. Like the Falcons were uh, at least early in game. So, you know, I think, All of this is to say that I do think that two tight end and multi-tight end sets could be something that the Falcons could expand their usage because Jaden Graham's versatility, you know, not only utilizing play action, um, but also being able to run the ball effectively. And I, I, I do wonder sort of, will they be able to as effective throwing the ball out of those two tight end sets because of Graham's ability over Stocker's ability, as you guys well know, like I don't necessarily, buy that much into the notion that Hayden Hurst is going to be a significant upgrade over Austin Hooper as a pass catcher. Um but we'll have to see about that. But you know, basically as I've said before, like if that's a lateral move, that's fine. Like, you know, Austin Hooper was an effective player in in that regard. Um, and and basically if you can get a significant gain from Jaden Graham versus Luke Stocker, that's already going to be significant improvement for that unit. And you know, one of the other things, just as a tidbit Final tidbit here that I noticed because I was hyper focused on the tight end position for about two hours earlier today watching the film was how remarkably similar Jaden Graham and, and Hayden Hurst movements are, which, as you guys know, because I'm not necessarily as keen on sort of Hayden Hurst being this mismatch guy, you know, that that did stand out to me. Like you know, I wouldn't necessarily label hate uh, Jaden Graham as a as a mismatch guy, but he's he's a good athlete. But I don't think anybody would be like, oh yeah, he's the second coming of, of Rob Gronkowski or anything like that. But that was just something else I noticed that you know, watching like when I'm trying to sit here and identify with tight ends on the field, you start to notice you know you start to keen in on how guys move and, and their body types, um, and like oh yeah, that's immediately recognize that as Austin Hooper, immediately recognize that as Jaden Hurst, Jaden Graham, and you know. Watching Jaden Graham and as well as watching Hayden Harris, I'm like, yeah, those guys are kind of similar in a lot of ways. But there's other things that I I, th- I thought watching those first 15 plays. And we will probably get into some of those things on next week's episodes as I continue to look at the data and the evidence in the film over the weekend. One of those things was like the utter lack of outside zone runs. You know, they, they did trying to use some late in the season. It was like, finally they started using some outside zone stuff late, very like the last month, last three, four games of the season. It's like, Oh, there's a crack toss. Wait, was that a stretch play? I think I saw one stretch play in week 12 or, or something like that. Um, so that's something that we can continue to talk about. And we'll see as I continue to look at the film and, and data to see if there's any other things that I glean from that we can talk about. On next week's episodes, but tomorrow's episode, we still got one more show of Locked On Falcons this week. And tomorrow we're going to have a guest, Matt Harmon. You guys know him, formerly of NFL.com, currently with Yahoo Sports covering fantasy stuff. So we'll get into Matt's takes on the Falcons and talk about Calvin Ridley. Matt was like the original person I had on the podcast uh, back in when we first drafted Calvin Ridley to give his assessment of Calvin Ridley. So we'll basically get a two year update from Matt and how how he thinks Calvin Ridley's development has gone so far. And also give you guys some fantasy football tips. uh, As you know, Matt has helped me upgrade my ability in um, fantasy because, you know, I really like his tier system and his tier rankings have uh, helped me be a, a lot more competent fantasy football player. So, definitely want to check that out by, of course, subscribing to the Lockdown Falcons podcast if you haven't already on your favorite podcast platform, including Apple Podcasts and Spotify. If you have any questions or comments or any type of feedback that you want to send me, you can do so and send me that via. Twitter at Lockdown Falcons via, via Facebook at Lockdown Falcons, or you can send an email to lockdownfalcons at mail.com. Until then, guys, we'll be back tomorrow with Matt Harmon and more. You are Locked On Falcons, your daily podcast on the Atlanta Falcons, part of the Locked On Podcast Network. Your team every day.